Fair winds are once again blowing for the idea of wind turbines in Lake Erie. It's the first subject we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Astafi, and Layla Tassi. And Lisa, you're up first. The on-again, off-again Lake Erie wind turbines are back on again, possibly for good this time, with an Ohio Supreme Court decision that resolves a key debate in the fate of the experimental project. Lisa, what was this case about? Man, this was like a good news story for me. And actually, it's kind of a step away from the taint of the House Bill 6 scandal. But the Lake Erie Energy Development Corp, or Lead Co., they're trying to build six wind turbines about 8 to 10 miles off the coast. And they've been stymied by the General Assembly and were almost ready to go out of business because they couldn't get the funding that they needed. But the Ohio Supreme Court weighed in. They voted six to one that the permit for the Icebreaker Wind Project, as it's known, was appropriately granted by the Ohio Power Siding Board. And this is probably the last legal obstacle for this project. Um, and it allows them to move ahead and like market their power because one third of their power is already promised to the city of Cleveland and Cuyahoga County when this is built. And, you know, now they can market for the other two thirds of their capacity. So the Ohio Power Siding Board was challenged by two Brattonall residents in a lawsuit. They were worried about the, you know, birds and bats being killed by these. And to be quite honest, they were worried about the site issues, you know, looking at wind turbines out in the in the lake. But uh, the the Supreme Court justices ruled that, you know, Leadco did what they were supposed to do. They gathered data about this, you know, about birds and bats. They looked at uh, land-based wind farms in the Great Lakes area, and they found also found that the location won't affect the nesting of certain bird species. So the residents that brought the suit couldn't, per, you know, prove that this decision was a mistake or willful disregard. So this is really exciting in my mind. Yeah, and there were questions about the real motivations for the lawsuit. I, I know that birders are worried about this, and people are worried about the view, although it's going to be a tiny little bit on the landscape. It's pretty far out. But Murray Energy, the now bankrupt company that was always controversial, was involved in funding some of this lawsuit. And so you had questions about whether is this legitimate or not. The There is one big hurdle, though. We talked in January. Uh, the, this project came very close to losing its federal grant because they right. had not found more funding. And in January, they learned they would get at least another year to do so. And as you said, that was hard to do with this this lawsuit hanging over their heads. But they got to get it in gear now and get the money because they can build. They, they are ready to go. They can put it up there as soon as they get the cash, right? Right. And they do have to kind of do a reset because I think that they really thought that this was never going to happen. And so, you know, they were struggling to, to keep the project alive. So, but they do have to kind of hit the ground running now. Absolutely. I do want to say that the lone dissenter in this Supreme Court opinion was Sharon Kennedy. She said that Leadco failed to gather the data of environmental impacts. And he said, and she said that the siting board gave lesser scrutiny to a democratic demonstration projects such as this is so and interesting her opponent in the supreme court uh chief justice race jennifer bruner wrote the majority uh opinion in this case 
Yeah, if you look at the past couple of years of rulings by the Supreme Court, Kennedy seems to always be on the wrong side. I don't know if anybody's going to notice that when they go to vote, if they just vote by party lines. But it's amazing how often she seems to be on the wrong side. We should say, too, because we've given him a lot of guff for his work over the years. But this was one of Bill Mason's ideas when he was county prosecutor. It was weird because he was the county prosecutor and he was part of the foundation of this. But this was something that he was involved in in the early days, the origination of uh, building the green power. So I just thought we should mention it. It's today in Ohio. The idea to push Cuyahoga County taxpayers deeper into debt by spending more than $50 million on the failed project once known as the Medical Mart became more expensive when County Executive Armin Budish proposed adding a sky bridge to the thing. Budish might have a hurdle to leap that is even higher than his bridge. Layla, what is it? Very witty, Chris. The uh, the hurdle is that the, the city kind of hates it. So Mayor Justin Bibbs people gave Caitlin a statement uh, that's saying that these sky bridges take pedestrians off the streets and, and potentially reduce foot traffic to nearby businesses. His statement said that he and his planning department generally don't believe that sky bridges support good urban planning principles. And, and that Overall, the work of community building downtown would be hindered by them. His spokesperson said Bibb is willing to learn more about the concept that the county is pitching, but so far no one from the administration has shared any support for this plan. And City Councilman Charles Slife, who serves on the City Planning Commission Board, told Caitlin also that he expects the proposal will meet a lot of resistance there, too. He everything he said, I I I just loved every quote that Caitlin included from from Slife. He said, you know, there there are some limited instances where he thinks sky bridges would make sense, like at a hospital, for example. But this seems like a rather expensive solution to a minor problem, which is walking across St. Clair Avenue. <laughs> and you know, we were talking here about a five million dollar addition to the already. $54 million project to renovate the Global Center and, and fully marry it to the adjoining convention center. That price tag has been ticking up, it seems, by the day. With inflation just last week, we learned that that was going to cost more. Um, you know, Before the bridge is approved, the plans have to first be vetted by this advisory committee that's made up of local design professionals, and they would then make recommendations for how the city's planning commission would vote. And while the planning commission has no obligation to follow that advice, they generally do. And Slife said that he'd be surprised if the members of that committee as well were excited about this. So, Look, th- this idea is so idiotic that you almost think they're gigging us, right? Like, <laughs> they know nobody wants them to spend money on this. And as a joke, they got into a room and they said, how can we make it more preposterous and, and make it more expensive and, and, and give people reason to complain? I mean, it's almost like it's a, a misdirection. We don't want them to talk about the toxic site we want to buy, buy for the jail. So let's create aggravation about this. And while they're all complaining about this, we'll go do other things. It's just a bad, bad idea. Actually, I think sometime in the next month or two, we might do a, a survey of Northeast Ohio on a bunch of topics. And this could be be one of them, just to find scientifically how resoundingly people hate this. We hear from people all the time. There's nobody who wants them to spend money on this, borrow money to, to, to do this. And here they all want to put a sky bridge in. It's just, how can you make this idea worse? Put a Ferris wheel in there? <laughs> you know, I, I... Hey, well, you know, ever since we lost the, uh, you know, the indoor amusement park, 
at the at the IX side. That's not a bad idea. Um, you know, it's funny. Caitlin spoke to like a half dozen business owners around the convention center who all said that they wouldn't oppose this, and in fact, that they're in support of the expensive plan to build out the global center and turn it into this Taj Mahal of convention centers because, you know, they're saying that the Sky Bridge won't deter people from venturing out for a meal when they want one, they, they do look, or, you know, they say that people look around for what's within walking distance. And if the skywalk makes the convention center a more attractive location for events, then that means okay. more visitors overall. But, but this won't make it more attractive. No one is going to decide <laughs> to come here or not come here because of a sky bridge. They're either going to come to Cleveland because we have kidding. all the amenities, right? They're going to come because they want to be here or they're not. But th- to say, hey, we have a sky bridge. Oh, oh, you got a sky bridge? Well, that closes the deal. We're <laughs> you in. You don't have to go outside. Yeah, that was one of the, I thought, Slife's comment about like, you know, people shouldn't get to, sh- shouldn't have to get, you know, come to Cleveland and then they never, they never even <laughs> That's <laughs> what the Cleveland are because you never even set foot on the pavement. It's like, yeah, I agree with that completely. I, I really, it's the city I, ever. You just float above it. <laughs> I, I really think they got in a room and said, how can we make this worse so we can get outraged here and do other things? Courtney, yeah, you're trying no, to say I do something. want to chip in. So like, really, I started seeing discussions of this, this renovation at the medical mart. Maybe it was a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago when I was still on the beat. And it seemed like at the beginning there were all these choices, and I think the Sky Bridge, if I if I'm recalling, what was mentioned at some point way back when, and but but the, it was like laid out as this grand wish list of all the different things that you could do. And at first, leaders were talking about doing smaller amounts of work on the Global Center. And one thing that's just struck me is how many things from the wish list they've now added. Here we are a, a year later, and it's just interesting. We have watched it grow. They they do have options to renovate this facility in a cheaper way. It would still be costly. I'm sure many folks would still balk, but they're just maxing out the credit card, it seems, at this point and piling on everything on that wish list. If they didn't have other very expensive capital needs, the jail, the courthouse, there probably would be less objections to it. Or if they figured out a way to do it without creating more debt. And and you can do lesser things. You don't have to do the Taj Mahal treatment, which they're doing. And now they're adding to it with cockamamie ideas like a sky bridge, which most urban planners are are going deep against. Nobody wants that anymore. They want you walking around on the street. Getting people off the street makes for the barren downtown. It's just, it's a terrible idea. I, it's amazing to me that we have a bunch of elected officials in a room who don't have any money, going to borrow more money, adding things like this. Just, yeah. They are out of touch. It's, it's, uh, I wonder, uh, it, they probably are thinking that they are not going to get this chance again. So they're just going to grab as much as they can. It's like when you tell your kid they can get a cookie out of the cookie jar and they grab two. And you're like, I said one. <laughs> you know, it's like, throw the sky bridge in. Why not? We're, we're, this is our only chance <laughs> to get everything from the wish list. It's like city planning by Daffy Duck and Elmer Fudd. It just doesn't make any sense. It's today in Ohio. Okay, let's talk about a council that's doing something smart. Cleveland City Council is proposing a new kind of leave for city workers who were put into some of the most precarious situations people can face in their personal lives. Courtney, you wrote this story. This is an innovative yeah, idea. Yeah, this is very interesting. City Council yesterday at its meeting introduced for consideration 
a safe leave policy. And what the safe leave would do is it would grant 60 hours of paid time off for per year for full-time non-union folks. Part-time uh, non-union workers would receive 30 hours. And council hopes that this policy can one day be extended into the union contracts as well. And basically what it does is it Okay, so you think about when you're when you're a victim of domestic violence or sexual assault, which is who this is for. There's so much your life is upended. There's so many needs you need to address, like seeking treatment, seeking counseling, relocating, getting victim services, going to doctors. There's all sorts of things here that that other types of city leave don't allow employees to take off for. Like think about finding new housing. You can't take sick leave to find a new place to live, but that's a very real need for people who are victims of domestic violence. We know the domestic violence and sexual assault problem got worse during the pandemic. Those levels haven't receded to where they are before. And as city council points out, the city employs thousands of people. There are definitely victims who who work for the city that they want to take care of and, and give this flexibility to. Yeah, I, th- this is a really humane idea. As you said, there's a few times in, in somebody's life where they is upside down is when they're trying to deal with abuse. They're trying to find housing, which is very hard to do while trying to protect the kids and themselves. I, what I don't get is why they're saying they'll eventually get it to the union. My bet is, is if they went to the unions and said, hey, we're going to make this available. You want it? The unions would say, absolutely. Let's put it in the contract. What, what, why, why the delay there? I'm not, I don't follow that. This is an absolute benefit. Would the unions oppose it? No. I mean, I, I don't think that's, that's what they were going for. I think they just wanted to, they don't have authority to insert it into the union contracts themselves. So they're just using their platform to say, hey, mayor, Hey, unions, when you guys craft contracts in the future, consider throwing this in there. We're, we're setting the precedent. This is something we support. Take this idea and run. Yeah, it's a good idea. I, do you know, you may not know this, but do you know if any other government has the done this? The way that they were talking, I don't know 100%, but the way they were talking about it yesterday is that Cleveland sees itself as a leader on this, as them starting this conversation. They said they hope this expands to other municipalities in Ohio. They hope private employers consider giving it to their employees. I think this is the city of Cleveland being a trendsetter and council trying to be. You know whose idea it was? Who I do, and this is a fun little story. So Cleveland State University students pitched this idea to council in 2019 as, as some part of some kind of student project, they looked into this and said, hey, city, this is something that's a real need. You should think to address it. Uh, the former councilman, Matt Zone, kind of picked up the football from there. And and then he left office and then he handed off kind of the mission to Councilwoman Jasmine Santana. And she kind of helped bring it across the finish line. And yesterday at the news conference, the councilwoman recounted her own family's experience with domestic violence when she was a child, recalling how her mom had to quit her job to whisk the family away to safety and to find a shelter. <clears throat> so she kind of illustrated the the need for this. Wow. Fascinating story. It's today in Ohio. Congress had a pitched battle on providing adequate health care to veterans suffering from being near burn pits in Baghdad, a cause championed by John Stewart. The bill is now law, though, and it turns out it's named for an Ohio veteran. Lisa, who is he and what is the law about? 
The law is the Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxics Act that was signed by President Joe Biden yesterday, and its full name includes uh, Sergeant First Class Heath Robinson of Pickerington. He was in Iraq, uh, you know, serving for the Ohio National Guard, and he died in 2020 at 39 years of age after exposure to Iraq burn pits. He had a rare lung cancer. So this bill does several, well, first, before I get into the specifics of the bill, I did see the signing ceremony yesterday on television. So uh, Robinson's widow, Danielle, introduced President Biden, and they were standing by along with his daughter, Brielle, watching him sign it. And then uh, Biden gave Brielle, the daughter, the signing pen. It was really kind of a very emotional moment, and I'm glad that I saw it. But the PACT Act, uh, you know, eliminates the requirement to prove service-related connection for diagnosis of 23 diseases that are linked to burn pits. It reduces the paperwork involved. Uh, There are several cancers and 11 respiratory ailments that are included in this. It also establishes 31 new VA health centers in 19 states. It requires the VA healthcare patients to be screened regularly for toxic exposure. And there's an outreach program and a website about the benefits and support information about toxic burn pits. They hope to have an expert network and a call center up by January 2023. And let us not forget that a lot of Republicans in Congress didn't vote for this. Yeah, I never understood it. Was it just the polarization because it was a Democratic push that they just, oh, it's Democratic push, we're opposing it? It seems like everybody would kind of rally around veterans who suffered because of their service. And again, John Stewart, a comedian, came to the rescue. I mean, he was he testified before Congress about 9-11 first responders getting cut off, and then that got reversed. He stepped in again, much to the 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 glee of the veterans he was representing. So it's funny how it takes a squeaky wheel to get the grease sometimes. Yeah, it was just one of those. I, I never understood the battle over it. I saw the photo of, of President Biden handing the pen to the young daughter was, as you said, pretty moving. Well, three of the four stories we've done so far, good news stories. I don't know if that's ever happened before. It's today in Ohio. People have spent two days speculating on the evidence behind the no-knock warrant served on former President Donald Trump's Florida compound involving records he may have taken from the White House illegally. Our chief politics writer, Andrew Tobias, offered some genuine perspective on the case by examining federal search warrants served on prominent Ohio politicians. Layla, what's the upshot? Well, Andrew's analysis found that it can take months or even years for these cases to develop into anything conclusive. If it happens at all, even though the political fallout can really be immediate, as we've seen in Trump's case, the former prosecutors told Andrew that's why any searches involving political figures have to clear this higher bar, including a minimum of a heads up phone call to the U.S. Attorney General's office in D.C., but a search warrant which documents what crimes investigators think may have been committed um, and what they seized could come at the beginning, middle, or end of an investigation. Meanwhile, the detailed sworn statement prosecutors have to present to a federal magistrate judge to approve the search in the first place is usually sealed from public view and doesn't become unsealed until criminal charges come, and that might never happen. So case in point, 
Clifton Rosenberger, who's a former House Speaker who, under pressure from his fellow state Republicans, suddenly announced his resignation in April of 2018, days after news broke that the FBI was investigating him. It, it wasn't completely clear what prosecutors were looking for until a warrant released the following August in response to a public records request showed the FBI searched his state office looking for records related to his travel with lobbyists for the payday lending industry. But more than four years later, Rosenberger still hasn't been charged. And his lawyer, David Axelrod, told Andrew that he suspects Rosenberger probably won't ever be charged. And then Andrew points to the House Bill 6 corruption case. The FBI in November 2020 searched the Columbus home of Sam Randazzo, who at the time was the state's top utility regulator. Randazzo soon resigned from his job. First Energy in July 2021 admitted to paying Randazzo a $4 million bribe in exchange for his help with regulatory issues. But Randazzo hasn't been charged with a crime. He denies wrongdoing. He said that the payment terminated a legal consulting contract with the company. He wasn't charged... And it wasn't in exchange for any specific action. It's it's not clear if or when Randazzo uh, may be charged. And Andrew also noted in his story how long it took from the time the FBI, FBI raided the Cuyahoga County office building in July 2008 until the time that Jimmy DeMora and Frank Russo were charged in that corruption case in, in November 2009. So uh, Andrew just did a great job of kind of walking us through the history and how long it takes for these cases to to reach some kind of conclusion that gives us any sort of detail. And and I think that really nicely foreshadows how long we're going to have to wait to see see some details in Trump's case. Well, and in the Demora case and in the Householder case, we we did learn most of what was going well. Householder was arrested and, and charged, so we got information from his charging documents. But long before Demora was charged, we knew the schemes because he was always referred to as public, public official, official number one or right. whatever it was, and and it was there was no doubt about who that was. And so for months and months, we were reporting about what he was involved in. Rosenberger's the different case. We got very little detail about what they thought they had. It destroyed his career. This guy was a rising Ohio guy in politics, and it destroyed his career. He looks like he'll never be charged. The statute of limitations, I think, expires next year or something. And, and, and it's just so unfair that, that that can happen to somebody like that. But and you never find out. They'll never say he's cleared. They never come out publicly and say, yes, we investigated allegations against him and we didn't find any evidence and he's innocent. They never do that. So there's always the taint. But but that is, I think, the case that could be demonstrate what's going to happen with Trump. I wish the Justice Department would show its hand because we were talking before the podcast, you have this raging debate in America, lots of Republicans harumphing and saying this is wrong and they have no idea what the evidence is. People on the left are celebrating it like he's going to go down. They have no idea what the evidence is. What's the evidence? We should know if they have evidence that our former president committed crimes and put it on the table because this is an ugly national debate. Wait, do you think that the Trump that Trump's case is going to end the way Cliff Rosenberger's did? I mean, we're I, I really early in Trump's case. We're only days out from from that raid. I think uh, let's give it some time to shake right. out. We we will probably find out eventually what they were, what they found, and what they were looking for exactly. Right. Right. But this is this is very different from what he did on January sixth. I mean, I think the January sixth commission has very clearly laid out the case that that guy 
committed crimes. He exhorted a crowd to revolt. I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of evidence that exists against him. With this, there's a, it's going to be a debate about records he took and whether or not he should have taken them. And, and, and that's going to be something I think that people debate. Is it a mistake? Is it a crime? We just don't know. We, we really have no idea. That's why I was glad Andrew did this story, because it gives people an idea of what can happen here and how long we might not know. Nobody should take what happened to Trump and draw conclusions because we simply have no clue. But but what's to debate here? He committed a crime as soon as those documents left the White House. It's clear that you do not take any kind of documents out of the White House. So the crime has already been committed. I'm sorry. Well, but but that those records were the ones he claimed to have returned. I, it's not clear whether he had any more. So this investigation was looking for something in addition to the cartons that he returned soon after he left. So I don't know. It's a, there's a lot of unknowns. We'll we'll all be waiting anxiously to see what the case is. Check out Andrew's story. It's on Cleveland.com, and this is Today in Ohio. We have another example of that while county council plays with sky bridges and nonsense, Cleveland City Council is doing some serious work. It had a marathon August meeting Wednesday, and it passed some groundbreaking legislation to help people headed to housing court. Courtney, the Cleveland already has done something to help people in housing court with the right to counsel for families in poverty. This is another step that would greatly help people facing homelessness. Yeah, and it really goes well and complements the right to counsel policy. And and we could see more pro-tenant housing policies come in the future. So this is one tool among many. It's called pay-to-stay protections for tenants who are at risk of eviction because they've fallen behind on rent. Basically, what it what the Cleveland measure does is it lets renters stay in their homes if they settle up with their past due amount with their landlord prior to an eviction hearing or prior to the housing court rendering a judgment in an eviction case. And, you know, I thought this was a really interesting quote. Mayor Justin Bibbs, Director of Building and Housing, Sally Martin, described it as a shot across the bow to show that we are pro-tenants. So city council passed this. Bib has been a backer of this policy. And, and how it works is it's, it's, an, it's an affirmative defense. So the tenant would have to raise this argument in court that they offered to pay their full outstanding balance, but the landlord charges ahead, doesn't accept it, and pursues eviction anyways. This would give judges and magistrates something to sink their teeth into a little bit in deciding whether to accept that affirmative defense and let the attend- let the tenant stay in place or move ahead with the eviction. So there's still judicial discretion here, but advocates say that it, it gives the judges something concrete to consider. This is an affirmative defense already existed in state case law. So it's still, it's already out there in the court system. This just formalizes it. We've seen several other cities do it. And this really started to gain steam as a city level policy in Ohio during the pandemic when, you know, housing concerns and how the economy would affect people's stable housing really came into the limelight. And what's really interesting about this is council kind of tweaked their legislation kind of at the last minute to also accept as part of this affirmative defense, if a renter has received a rental assistant voucher from the federal government, part of a lot of the pandemic aid we've seen flow down the past couple years, if they have secured that voucher but don't have the money in hand yet from the government, 
they can also use this defense as a way to stay in their home saying the money's guaranteed. It's on the way. Please let me remain. We really had our eyes open to how stacked uh, the court system was against people being evicted when we were doing a greater Cleveland. And around that time, a book came out nationally called Eviction. The author came and spoke here. And and it was clear that, that the, the tenant was almost powerless. The landlord had all of the power in the situation because they had attorneys and things like that. What's impressive about what city council has done is they've really leveled the playing field, which which likely will result in fewer eviction filings because landlords know they don't automatically win and they might be more likely to work with their tenants to to reach a compromise rather than just automatically throwing them out on the street. I, I just have been so impressed with what city council is doing under the leadership of Blaine Griffin these past seven months. And it is so polar opposite of what we're seeing at the county council, which is all based on silliness. Was uh, was there any dissent, Courtney, in the council or was everybody behind Folks this? Folks were behind it. There were some critical questions asked at committee, but, but council has been working on this proposal. It's wanted to do this for a while. Finally, the time was right to get it through and, and they moved on it. You know, I do want to point out that this kind of legislation is particularly important in Ohio. We're one of five states where a landlord, to your point about landlords having all the power, can kick people out for non-payment of rent if they're one day past due. Like the next day they can file for eviction. Wait. So Ohio is a unique wait, wait, situation. You, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Layla, you were trying to say something? No, I was just going to note that that there's one more very important piece to this uh, this housing uh, legislation puzzle that that I really hope is on its way, and I suspect it is, and that's the protections for tenants who use housing vouchers, known as the the source of income protections. And you know, I just discussing Armin Budish. I want to remind people that Armin Budish promised the county that you know we'd be seeing some countywide protections for for those tenants he made that promise back in the fall of 2021 we haven't heard a single word about that since then and i suspect that we will see city council beat the county to that life altering progressive source of income legislation and i am looking forward to having this conversation on the podcast about city council yet again being the the uh uh, the leader in in that. So, I I do wonder if the problem at the county is that they don't have the authority to impose rules like that inside municipalities that have charters. We wondered about that when he first brought it up, and you're right; he hasn't said a word since. And you wonder what is happening. But I, it's just great to see enlightenment and thoughtfulness and service to the people coming out of an elected body. You know, we talk so often about how elected officials around here don't seem to have the public in mind, but we've had a series of Cleveland City Council moves that are very, very different. It, it, it's it's so different than the last 20 years. It's just, I don't know what's going on. It's, uh, I hope it continues. We are out of time. It's today in Ohio. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Layla. We got a bunch of stuff we leave on the table. We'll try and get to it tomorrow. 